last Monday was the deadline for filing our income tax returns. It's one of those days that challenges our general sanctification process. One of the questions on the form is if you are married, whether or not you will be filing a joint return, whether you'll be filing jointly with your spouse. I have a limited understanding of these things, but when, to my, the best of my understanding is that when, we, when you file together, both husband and wife are united in the fi- same financial picture. All of the benefits or penalties, all of the blessings or curses come to both parties. They're shared, the same bottom line is shared by husband and wife. Both parties share the same tax return. They are united to the same record. As I had my statement prepared, my return prepared, I was familiarized with the reality that I needed to write a check to the United States Treasury. I also understood not that that was just, not that just the reality that I owed the government money, but that I had the responsibility to pay that bill. And as a result of paying or not paying, I would face the results that were due of Fulfilling my responsibility or not fulfilling that responsibility. Union. It's one of the most important parts of Easter. Romans chapter 6. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul teaches us all about resurrection union. Would you please turn in your copy of the Scriptures to the book of Romans. If you're using a copy that's provided for you in the pew, you can find Romans chapter 6 on page 794. This morning, we consider the union that Christians have with Jesus Christ. Specifically, we consider the union that we have to Christ's resurrection. Now, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are not yet a Christian, there is good news for you in the passage that we will read this morning. First, there is bad news, and then there is better news. There is great news that that supersedes the bad news. Romans chapter 6 could be seven or eight separate sermons. Before anybody hits panic mode and worries about the ham in the oven, everything's going to be okay. We're going to zoom out and take an take a overview picture, an overview look at Romans chapter 6 this morning. But I would urge you to consider a more in-depth meditation and consideration of this chapter later today, or maybe throughout the rest of this week. I encourage you to talk about it over dinner today. Maybe you're having friends over from within the congregation or you're, having, you're showing hospitality to those in your neighborhood. Talk about this, the theme and the message of being united to Christ, specifically to his resurrection. Here's the primary idea for our consideration this morning. The only way, the only way from death to life is through our union to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, we will consider the reality of this union that we have with Jesus. And then we will see that Romans chapter 6 points out a couple of responsibilities that we have, kind of in response to the realities that are laid out. And then we will close with a few words of of hopeful encouragement as, as we see the results of this union. But first, the reality of your union to Christ's resurrection. Paul begins by asking a question. Look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He not only asks the question, but he also provides an answer. He says, absolutely not. 
He says, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? His answer almost communicates outrage at this idea of continuing in our sin, or continuing to live out sin in our life. God shows grace, and forgiveness is granted by God, and that forgiveness comes in order not to make a path for us to continue in our rebellion against God. God offers us this forgiveness, and God shows grace to us, not, in so, not so that we can continue to live in that sin, but rather to provide a path to, live, to, to flee away from that sin and to live in devotion to God. What are the realities that provide for this opportunity to live in devotion to God? A first reality of our union with, with our resurrected Christ we see here in verse 2. He says, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? One of the realities of our union with Christ's resurrection is that we are dead to sin. The apostle Paul is writing to Christians and he says that we are dead to sin. That's a reality. If we are in Christ, it means that we are dead to sin. It is impossible to be alive in Christ and also to be alive to sin. We once were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we've been made alive together in Christ. It's impossible to be alive in Christ and also to be alive to sin. The apostle says, here's the reality. You are dead to sin if you are in Christ. You cannot serve those two masters simultaneously. One of the realities of your union with Christ's resurrection is this. If you are in Christ, you are dead to sin sin. Second reality is that we have been baptized into Jesus. Look at verse 3. And know ye not that so many of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into his death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Next Sunday, Lord willing, one or two students from Millersville University will be baptized at the conclusion of our worship service. Water baptism is a picture of our union with Jesus, that just as we are buried in the likeness of his death, we are also raised to walk in newness of life. Paul tells us that a reality of our union with Christ is that we are permanently being immersed into Christ to the extent that we have been made one with him. Paul teaches us that Christ was buried and that he was raised, and therefore uh, we are dead to sin, and therefore we are also able to walk in newness of life. One of the realities, another one of the realities of your union with Christ's resurrection, is that if you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, then a transformed life, a different life, is available to you. You don't have to walk in your sin. You no longer have to be a slave to alcohol, to pornography, to greedy ways, to sinful anger because you are permanently being immersed into Christ. The reality for your life, your Christian life, is that a, trans a transformed life is available for you. Look at verse number 5. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dies no more. Death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he lives, 
He lives unto God. Although we have not experienced physical resurrection of our body yet, we do possess all of the benefits of new life because of our union with Christ. This co-resurrection with Christ, it's paramount, it's, it's, it's foundational to our understanding of our own salvation. Union, brings, union with Christ brings change now. That's a reality of that union. God's goal in the gospel is for his children to no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse number 6. Verse number 7. Our union to Christ's death breaks that bondage. Verses 8 and 9. Christ's life infuses the lives of believers now and in the age to come. So the reality is, those who are genuinely united to Christ's resurrection have a changed life. How? Well, salvation gives a new, gives a new believer a new nature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. There was a newness of the quality and character of the individual. One person put it this, illustrated it this way. The grapes upon a vine are not merely a living token that the tree is a vine and is alive. They are the product for which the vine exists. There is a purpose. The fruit represents the purpose of the actual vine. The reality for us is that we are justified for the purpose of being sanctified, to be set apart, to be changed into the image of Christ. We are declared righteous so that we continue to live righteously. If you were to go through all of the scriptures, you would find no example in the scripture of someone who was justified but not sanctified. Someone does not, that person does not exist. One of the realities of our union with Christ's resurrection is this. A transformed life is indeed available and progressing. One preacher said it this way, the, the life that is not basically marked by holiness has no claim on salvation. If your life is not basically, at the root level, marked by holiness, then you have no claim of genuine salvation. A saved soul is a changing soul, Paul teaches us. So friends, the only way from death to life is through our union with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. The reality of this union with Christ include that we are dead to sin, that a transformed life is an option for us, that a transformed life is available and is, is progressing as we walk this Christian life. But let's turn from the realities of this union with Christ and consider some of the responsibilities that we have as a result of being united to Christ's resurrection. Look at verse number 11. Paul gives us these realities in the first 10 verses, and then he says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That word likewise in verse number 11 is important. Other translations might say, even so, or uh, in the same way. So Paul is saying, you have to believe and accept these realities, that you are dead to sin, that you can have a transformed life, that God is continually setting you apart. You have to understand those realities, or what I'm about to tell you, Paul says, isn't going to make sense. You must believe the realities in order for your responsibilities to make any sense. 
At some point last year, I was working on a small electrical project at my house. And I needed to disconnect a light from the wall. It was only a small wire, and the tingling didn't even, didn't even last that long. Did I tell you about that? There are some realities about working with electricity. Electricity shocks you. Enough electricity can kill you. Messing with electrical wires can be dangerous. If I don't accept, if I don't cons consider those realities to be truth, then I will never take seriously my responsibilities to be careful when doing an electrical project, to get a professional to do the electrical project, to turn off the breaker to the outlets, to turn off the electricity to the house. Shoot, I was so scared, next time I'm going to call PPL and tell them to turn off the electricity to my whole neighborhood. Paul says, likewise, in the same way, because of these realities, you have some action to take. You have some individual, personal responsibilities that are yours. Now, let's not misunderstand Paul's teaching. These are responsibilities that Paul outlines in verses 11 through 14 that we'll come to in just a second. These are not ways that we can be united to Christ's resurrection. We can't fulfill these responsibilities and then save ourselves or be connected to Jesus and therefore have everlasting life. In other words, while there is a personal responsibility involved, it's not a, it's not a matter of obtaining that union with Christ's resurrection. Someone's union with, with Christ only comes by grace through faith in the atoning work of Jesus at the cross. That being said, the apostle says that once we have been saved, there are a couple of ways that we should live. First of all, he says, the first responsibility is that we should count ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. He says in verse number 11, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Now, we don't say that word a lot anymore. When I think of reckon, I think of a southerner saying, I reckon I'll have a, another glass of sweet tea, or I reckon I'll go shoot a squirrel, or I reckon I'll do this or that. It doesn't mean I suppose, or maybe I'll get around to doing something. To reckon means to, to consider, to count, to consider yourself this way, dead to sin. Now maybe you're thinking, well, Paul already covered that, right? Early in the chapter, verse number two, we noted it's a reality that we are dead to sin. True, but it's one thing to be, for it to be a reality in your life that if you're in Christ that you are dead to sin. It's a second thing for you to consider yourself, for you to count yourself as being dead to sin. I can know that the electrical wire is hot. I still have to take care not to make contact with that wire. Here, Paul is teaching us to take action, to consider to count yourself being dead to sin and alive to God. Unfortunately, that concept is, is somewhat foreign to many Christians. Here's what I mean. Some Christians, probably some in this room, have been taught that salvation only brings transactional holiness, that God regards them as holy, but that their relationship to sin is the same that it always was, even before they came to faith in Christ. In other words, some Christians believe that they will eventually change, but not until they see Jesus. That their sin is this, their relationship with sin is the same way. They think that until they see Jesus, that they're stuck in their sinful ways. That's not accurate. That's not the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. That's not biblical thinking. That view teaches that the old nature remains fully operational and that the Christian life is simply a, a battle between the old man and the new man. But that makes salvation a matter of, of addition instead of a matter of transformation from the inside out. It makes salvation all about doing good deeds, adding good deeds to your life while attempting to stop the bad deeds. Paul teaches us that the gospel transforms us because we are dead to sin and alive to God. We can have confidence. In the middle of the temptation, we can have confidence knowing that since sin's rule over us has been broken, we can resist temptation in God's power, the same resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead. You can actually be reminded right before or right in the middle of some sinful uh, outrage that you are dead to sin. And at that very moment, you can turn and resist sin. Each week, I pray through the congregation, the list that, that we print on the back of the, the church calendar. One of, my, one of my most common prayers for, for you as, as harvesters is that you'll have many, many reminders that you are in Christ, that you're united to Christ's death and to his resurrection, that you'll be reminded that you are dead to sin and that you will consider yourself to be dead to sin. Let me encourage you. Talk to one another about that. When you gather together on the Lord's Day at Harvest Bible Church, remind one another. You're sharing burdens with one another, right? You're telling each other, oh, I really messed up in my parenting this week. I got angry at, at one of my kids. Or I messed up at work this week. I didn't really do the, the most ethical thing. Or I did this or I did that. Remind one another that you can turn from sin. You can resist sin because you are dead to sin and alive to God. It's your responsibility to turn away. How do we act on this responsibility? Well, look at verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. So don't let sin reign in your body, and don't yield your body as instruments of, right, of, of unrighteousness to sin. Don't allow sin to take up residency in your heart, in your life, in your body, what you do. Just like bed bugs that multiply and spread their corruption through a mattress, sin multiplies, spreading its corruption through your heart and through your life. Don't allow sin to reign in your body. Don't allow sin to take up residency in your heart. 1 Peter 2 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you, may that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Verse 11, Beloved, they urge you as, as pilgrims, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Christian, you are dead to sin. You must take seriously your responsibility to count yourself, to consider yourself dead to sin. The first responsibility is to reckon, to consider, to count yourself to be dead to sin, alive to God. You don't have to serve sin. Count yourself in that way. Think of yourself as being dead to sin. The second responsibility is to present yourself as instruments of righteousness. So we read in verse 13, 
neither yield ye your members of, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Woohoo! For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Rather than allowing your body, yourself, your heart, to continue being instruments of sin, Paul says, yield your body. Yield yourself as an instrument of righteousness to God. The word yield means to present, to offer yourself. The gospel message calls Christians to really a humble defiance of sin's claim to rule in our bodies and in our hearts every day of our life. Sin makes that claim, right? The devil wants us to believe that claim, that sin is reigning. But this idea, this, 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 this gospel message uh, that Paul is presenting in, in Romans chapter 6, it calls us to a humble defiance of that. Hey, you don't reign sin. You don't reign in me anymore. I am dead to sin and alive to God. Because we have been brought from death to life, we can present ourselves to God. Our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, our voices, our minds, our hearts, our entire body that was once ravaged by sin can become a tool of righteousness. That's why he tells us in chapter 12, verse, verses 1 and 2, I beseech or I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies, this is an act of worship, as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable. It's your reasonable service. It's your act of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does this kind of yielding look like? It looks like giving up your time and your energy towards to spend on things of God, kingdom work. It looks like being submitted to the leading of God in your life, whatever he calls you to, being willing to follow his lead. Counting yourself dead to sin and alive to God, presenting yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. These are two responsibilities that come as a result of being united to Christ in his resurrection. Can you take these responsibilities seriously? How are you practicing these responsibilities? Have you made an effort to help other believers do the same? God has done his part. He's united you to Christ, but don't fail to live responsibly as, as, a, as a result of this union. The only way to move from death to life is through our union with our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Two responsibilities. Count yourself dead to sin, alive to God. Present yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. Now, let's bring verses 15 to 23 into play as we consider the results of our union with, to Christ's resurrection. This last section is all about freedom from sin. Have you considered your sin recently? Have you considered what sin is like? Sin is unthankful, isn't it? It doesn't acknowledge the goodness of God. Although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, Romans 1. Sin is hopeless. Man cannot find, no human being can find anything within themselves to cure himself from sin. And it's penalty. We don't find in ourselves any way to help ourselves out of the, the hopelessness of our dreadful sin. Sin is powerful. It permeates our heart and our mind and our will. Our whole being is messed up because of sin. 
Sin is devastating. It has corrupted us to the core, our soul. Sin is broad. It displays itself in, a, in wide-ranging ways in our lives. It's, it's not only you and me. Sin's destruction has affected the entirety of creation. Sin is miserable. Though there is pleasure in sin for a short time, sin eventually will bring death. Sin is, it, it, sin is bonding. It's gripping. It's got a grip on us. It's enslaving. Sin rules in hearts. Therefore, sin is condemning. Any individual who does not turn from sin toward Christ will be damned to an eternity apart from God because of their own personal choices towards sin. In light of this grand union to Christ's death and resurrection, Paul asks another question. Verse 15, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. He says, by no means. He says, he says don't even think about it. Rather, because we are united to the death and the resurrection of Jesus, there are some specific results as, that come. First of all, there's a change of master. We understand that each of us has entered into this world as slaves to sin. In Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Romans chapter 3, there's not a single righteous person, not even one. All of us have sinned. None of us have naturally sought after God and wanted to please him naturally from the beginning of our life. We all came into this world as slaves to sin. Sin was our master. We were in bondage, having no hope in ourselves to do anything but serve sin. And Paul explains that one of the results of our union to Christ's resurrection is that we have a change in our master. Verse number 16 says, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. The gospel calls for a dedication from our heart. Verse 17, But God be thanked that ye were servants of sin. That's who you were. You were slaves to sin. But you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. So there's a change of heart that's foundational. The gospel brings a heart transformation, not only behavior modification. And the result is this. Because you have a new master, because you no longer serve sin, but you serve righteousness, because you no longer are under Satan's control but you, uh, and leadership, you are following Jesus. Because you have a new master, sin is not inevitable as it once was. The result of a changed master is that you don't have to serve sin any longer. We've been set free. Verse 18, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. We have been set free. Verse 19, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now... Yield your members, servants, to righteousness and to holiness. Through the gospel, we have a new master. By God's grace, we have been set free from our bondage to sin. As the song says, my chains are gone. I've been set free. A new master means 
and that you have been set free from your chains of enslavement to sin. One of the results of our union to Christ's resurrection is freedom. Freedom to serve God in righteousness. Most of you, many of you, know that one of our gospel partners in Indonesia is my wife's brother. And Jonathan, during his high school days, he uh, got a rambunctious black lab, uh, Labrador, that he named Samson. And that dog was as happy-go-lucky as they come, but wild, so very wild. He went through obedience school, and he came out wild, very wild. There was a big part of, the back, of his backyard that was fenced off for him. But when you opened up that gate, he felt the freedom. And he shot out of there with the power of a rocket off a launch pad. Long strides that kept him low to the ground, able to turn sharp corners. You didn't want to be in his way when he was released from his, his fenced-in area. Once the gate was opened, he was no longer mastered by a wire fence. Friends, once the tomb was opened, we are no longer mastered by the bondage of sin. We have been set free. We are free to serve Christ with all that is within us. This does not mean that a believer will no longer sin, but it does mean that a believer is no longer enslaved to sin. A believer is no longer helpless in the matter. Before Christ, we couldn't help but sin because we were slaves to sin. But now after Christ, we have the option not to sin because we have been united to the death of Christ and to the victory of his resurrection. Christian, remember who you, you, who you present yourself to. You present yourself to the Savior, to your Savior. You present yourself to the King of kings, to the Lord of lords, because you have been set free, give yourself to Him. Worship Him. Live for Him. Adore Him with all that's within you. One of the results is that we have a change of masters. A second result is that there's a change of lifestyle. Look now at verse number 19 again. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even now yield your members of servants to righteousness unto holiness. Verse 20, For when ye were servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. These last verses kind of give the backstory of, this, of sanctification that has already been promised in the preceding verses. When the heart is changed by the gospel, the life is changed. We are called to, to progressively conform to the image of Christ. And God has a purpose in this transformation that he does in us. The purpose is not to give us freedom to, so that we can live just however we want. Okay, you've been set free from the bondage of sin. Go live however you want. That's not the purpose at all. That's not what the gospel teaches. That's not what Romans 6 teaches us. Rather, we are freed to live out our life to the glory of God, to do as he pleases. It's not uncomfortable, master, 
It's not an uncomfortable master that we have, a new master that we have. It's a joyful service to him. We're being changed into his image. It's one of the results of the union that we have with Christ. You know the story of John Newton, his history with slaves. We sing some of his wonderful hymn texts, the most famous being Amazing Grace. He became a pastor of a church in England, and in the same churchyard you can find a, a, a saying that, that Newton himself wrote, reflection on his own life. He described it this way, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slave in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. He had a change of lifestyle. His whole life was transformed because of his union to Christ's death and resurrection. Friend, your life should look different now. Your thoughts should be different now. Your thinking should be different now because you have been transformed by the gospel. You shouldn't go to the same places that you once went to. You shouldn't speak in the same way that you once spoke. You shouldn't have intake of entertainment that you once had. You should spend your money in a different way. The way you talk should be different. Being united to the resurrection of Christ results in a changed life, a changed master. In verses 22 and 23, tell us that another result is that there's a change in destination. The end of verse 22 says, Ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end is everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Before salvation, sin had the upper hand. It's inevitable for us to sin. There's no way out, it seems. After salvation, we have a new master. He produces fruit in our life. He puts us on a path for the age to come, the path towards eternal life. So as Christians, we, not, we, do not know, we no longer dread the penalty of our sin. Instead, we rejoice in the free gift of eternal life. Verse 23 teaches us that the only way from sin to righteousness, the only way from damnation to salvation, the only way from eternal death to eternal life is through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friend, if you have never been born again, if you have never repented and turned from your sin and received this gift of salvation, I encourage you to do that today. You too can be united to the death and the resurrection of Jesus and enjoy these results that come, including everlasting life. Christian Romans 6 teaches us that all of the benefits of Christ's resurrection are yours. He has moved. He has moved you from death to life. He has called you to consider yourself dead to sin. He has called you to present yourself to him. He's given you a new master. He's freed you to, to go all out, as it were, for Jesus. So go live your life this week to the praise of his glory. Go present yourself to him. Run from sin this week. Live out the freedom from sin that he has granted to you and that he's obtained for you through his death and through his resurrection. Your whole life 
the entirety of your life as a follower of Christ comes back to the fact that Jesus lives in the tomb 2,000 years ago. The heart of Jesus Christ began to beat again. And the blood, the very blood that brought us peace with God began to race through the veins of Christ. And that changed everything. He took one breath and he put death to death. Christian, all of your hope, all of your hope for this life and the next hinges on the truth that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead.